Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Whereas certain violent and unwarrantable proceedings have lately taken place, tending to obstruct the operation of the laws of the United States for raising revenue upon spirits distilled within the same, enacted pursuant to express authority delegated in the Constitution of the United States, which proceedings are subversive of good order, contrary to the duty that every citizen owes to his country and to the laws, and of a nature dangerous to the very being of a government. Now, therefore, I, George Washington, President of the United States, do by these presents most earnestly admonish and extort all persons whom it may concern to refrain and desist from all unlawful combinations and proceedings whatsoever, having for object or tending to obstruct the operation of the laws aforesaid, inasmuch as all lawful ways and means will be strictly put in execution for bringing to justice the infractors thereof and securing obedience thereto. On September 15, 1792, Washington issued this proclamation in response to the recent agitation against the excise tax on whiskey. Little did he know that he would be leading forces west two years hence to enforce these words. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. Let's start this episode by giving special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. We wouldn't be able to forge West in this episode without his efforts for the podcast. If you, like me, need Andrew's assistance with your podcast or audio project, drop him a line via email at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. Before Washington and his cabinet could fully turn their attention to events out West, which we'll discuss in a few minutes, they first had to deal with developments closer to home in the nation's capital. As we discussed two episodes back, as the cool weather caused the yellow fever epidemic to abate, Congress was able to convene in Philadelphia in December 1793. However, the Congress that came to town was of a different nature than the two previous. First, this was the first Congress to have been elected using population data gathered during the 1790 census. This was done along the lines of the Apportionment Act of 1792. An earlier version of the bill had been vetoed by Washington, the first presidential veto in U.S. history, as a matter of fact, on the basis that it did not give a defined ratio of allotting representatives in the House based on population, and that it violated the Constitution, which stipulated, quote, the number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000. The revised bill, which became law on April 14, 1792, and guided the elections of that year, provided for the expansion of the House from 72 seats to 105. Unfortunately for the administration, those new seats eliminated a pro-administration majority in the House. Thus, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton's ambition to clear his name from the Giles inquiry, discussed back in episode 1.14, would prove even more difficult. Contrary to the conventional approach to such matters as we've seen with so many politicians who have tried to avoid investigation, 
Hamilton instead wrote to Speaker of the House Frederick Muhlenberg asking for the investigation against him to proceed. As he told the Speaker, quote, The more comprehensive it is, the more agreeable it will be to me. Famous last words. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One has to wonder what Hamilton's endgame was here. Well, I'll go ahead and warn you to get out that salt because I'm going to give you my two cents, then bring in some of the experts. This is the end of 1793 going into 1794. Hamilton's already said that he's going to be in the cabinet for another year in order to clear his name. It's pretty obvious to all those that were close to Washington at the time, unless they're completely oblivious, that he wished he hadn't run for re-election. So he's not likely to run for re-election again in 1796. Someone's going to have to run. Why not Hamilton? Now, that being said, I couldn't prove that was in his mind without much more research, and even then, possibly not conclusively. However, I will bring in as my first witness his contemporary John Adams, who years after leaving the presidency and after Hamilton's demise, wrote of Hamilton that he felt that Hamilton, quote, was in a delirium of ambition. He had been blown up with vanity by the Tories, had fixed his eye on the highest station in America, and he hated every man, young or old, who stood in his way or could in any manner eclipse his laurels or rival his pretensions. Without regard to motives, it was obvious that Hamilton wished to clear his name, but considering, as we discussed in episode 1.14, the charges against him were that he had used foreign loans to repay domestic debt, including government loans from the Bank of the United States, which technically was illegal, and Hamilton likely knew that it was illegal when he did it. How did he intend to get off of these charges? Simple. He blamed Washington. But we'll come back to that. Congress would certainly oblige him in continuing the investigation. As a newcomer to the Senate, someone mentioned for the first time last episode, Albert Gallatin of Pennsylvania, submitted resolutions that called for, quote, a comprehensive account of Treasury operations in early January 1794, with the motion being adopted on January 20th and the request sent to Hamilton. Now, it should be remarked here that there was no provision at the time for an annual report on Treasury operations to be submitted to Congress, and there wouldn't be for another seven years. Hamilton ultimately would not fulfill the request of the Gallatin inquiry, as Gallatin himself was removed from his seat in late February, as it was determined that he had not met the citizenship eligibility requirements of serving in the Senate, that one be a citizen for nine years prior to assuming a seat in the Senate. Though the Senate would not hold Hamilton to task after Gallatin's ouster, the House had kicked back into gear with its investigation, assembling a select committee on February 24th to investigate Treasury operations. The committee worked for the next three months, meeting, quote, every Tuesday and Thursday evening and Saturday morning, with Hamilton testifying at about half the sessions. Besides providing extensive official information, he had to disclose all of his private accounts with the Bank of the United States and the Bank of New York, as Democratic Republicans tried to prove that Hamilton had exploited his office to extort credits from the two banks. While Hamilton was dealing with the House investigation, he and the rest of the cabinet were adjusting to the changes in their makeup. 
Once he had received definite word in July of Jefferson's intentions to resign as Secretary of State at the end of the year, Washington had begun the search for a replacement. He settled on his first choice as Representative James Madison. However, he had good reason to believe that Madison would refuse, which indeed, he ultimately did decline the nomination. So Washington and Jefferson also brainstormed alternate candidates. Their discussion went through the possibilities of Chief Justice John Jay, Senator Rufus King of New York, Representative William Lawden Smith of South Carolina, South Carolina State Representative Edward Rutledge, Maryland Governor Thomas Johnson, Chancellor Robert R. Livingston of New York, Dr. James McClurg of Virginia, and Comptroller of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr. before Jefferson brought up the possibility of Attorney General Edmund Randolph. Washington at first seemed cool on the idea, as he wasn't sure if Randolph was, quote, fit for it. And Jefferson did bring up Randolph's financial issues as a reason against the appointment, as it, quote, might compromise his, Randolph's, independence. Nothing was settled until December 24th, when Washington, without it seems having beforehand consulted with anyone else, or even previously mentioning the possibility to Randolph himself, wrote to Randolph offering him the position. Randolph, after taking a couple of days to consider and meeting with Washington on the matter, agreed, and the Senate confirmed Randolph as the second Secretary of State on January 2nd. However, with Randolph moving over to state, that then left a vacancy in the post of Attorney General. Washington would decide before January was out to fill that vacancy with William Bradford of Pennsylvania, who came into the cabinet from the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. Though technically, both men should have been acceptable to Democratic-Republicans, as Randolph considered himself one of their number. While Bradford had been friends with Madison for a long time, neither appointment was in fact viewed favorably by Jefferson's supporters. As explained by Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, Randolph had earned the suspicion and even enmity of Jefferson and Madison by what they regarded as his vacillating, unprincipled, compromising course during the preceding year i.e. when he time and again proved to be the one to come up with a bridge between Hamilton's and Jefferson's arguments and presented a middle-of-the-road way that Washington ultimately went with. And Bradford had become as staunchly Federalist as the Boudinot clan into which he had married. Increasingly, Madison feared the president, surrounded by Federalists, would become their unwitting tool. Meanwhile, House Democratic Republicans would continue their attempt to discredit Hamilton, but ultimately found that the only thing that proved to be a valid charge was the one that Giles had brought up in his resolutions, quote, that he, Hamilton, had exercised too much discretion in shifting government funds between the United States and Europe. When questioned on that point, Hamilton claimed that he had, quote, unquote, verbal authority from Washington to do so and, when pressed, offered to share some letters from Washington with the committee, quote, showing the general spirit in which he and Washington handled such matters. When Washington was informed of Hamilton's using him as a defense against the charges, he, quote, expressed to Randolph surprise and passion. The fact that his Treasury Secretary and longtime associate would attempt to implicate him in anything with an air of impropriety was astounding to him. When Hamilton showed him the letters to which he had referred, they, quote, turned out to be not very damning or even germane. They related to authorizations other than the one at issue. Then, Hamilton requested that Washington write a public letter confirming that he had given Hamilton verbal authorization to use the funds as he had and sent along a report on the matter as had been requested from Congress. Washington sent the report to Randolph for a legal interpretation, and Randolph shared with Washington his opinion that Hamilton's draft report, quote, 
far from merely suggesting that the president had acquiesced in the secretary's judgment, seemed to embrace Washington in blame by suggesting that he'd actively rendered an opinion that applying funds to the bank debt was legal. Randolph advised Washington to not sign on to any of the implications outlined in the report, but to also not dispute any specifics in his public letter on the matter. Thus, Washington, in his letter of April 8th that he provided to Hamilton as requested, asserted that, quote, I cannot charge my memory with all the particulars which have passed between us relative to the disposition of the money borrowed. From my general recollections of the course of proceedings, I do not doubt that it was substantially as you have stated it. As described by Ron Chernow, quote, Washington obliged Hamilton with a mealy-mouthed letter that was so bland as to undercut Hamilton's position. Hamilton replied to Washington that day, warning that he felt that, quote, false and insidious men were taking advantage of the want of recollection, which is natural, and have found means by artful suggestions to infuse doubts and distrust very injurious to me. Hamilton had been walking a fine line on the matter, but he was clearly challenging Washington's memory of the affair and attempting to exert his influence to get Washington to provide him cover. The potential adverse effects for Hamilton were of no matter to Washington. He refused to change his statement in any way. Ultimately, the committee would exonerate Hamilton of all charges and conclude that he had not used his official position to any form of personal benefit, but rather had acted in the public's interest at all times. The exoneration would cause Hamilton to withdraw his intentions to resign from his post, but though he would be able to finally get back to business, it was clear that something had shifted as a result of the investigation. On April 24th, Hamilton would ask for Washington's, quote, approval of applying one million florins out of three million borrowed in Amsterdam to the Dutch debt and the other two million to paying off the national debt in the United States. One has to wonder at the gall of Hamilton of attempting to do the same thing again that he had just been investigated for. But the brazenness of the request had other dimensions. After so recently accusing Washington of having a faulty memory, he was now counting on that faulty memory in order to get his way. It would not work, though. Washington, recognizing that all of this was sounding familiar, went to his files and found that he had already given Hamilton orders to apply all $3 million to the national debt. When he confronted the Treasury Secretary about this, it was Hamilton now that claimed faulty memory saying that with everything that had transpired with his illness the year prior and the investigation since, and the fact that the order had not been entered into the Treasury's books, he had simply forgotten about Washington's direction. However, since it hadn't been entered into the Treasury's books, there was still time to change the order and apply $1 million to the Dutch debt. No, replied Washington, after a consultation with Randolph on the matter. Congress had appropriated the funds to be used to pay down the domestic debt. If he wanted it to be applied differently, Hamilton would have to take it up with Congress. For now, Washington's role was to execute the directives as provided by Congress. Though he had initially changed his mind, Hamilton now again brought up the possibility of his leaving the cabinet, but asserted that he would only do so if it was Washington's wish. The president replied that, quote, Of course, nothing has been done by me to render your continuance in office inconvenient or ineligible. On the contrary, I am pleased to have you determined to remain at your post until the clouds over our affairs, which have come on so fast of late, shall be dispersed. For now, Hamilton was still in at Treasury, 
But those like Madison, who felt that Washington would be overwhelmed by Hamilton's will, clearly underestimated Washington's will to lead. However, the test facing the president would continue, with some of the clouds to which he had referred coming from the West. It's been a while since we've discussed General Anthony Wayne and his forces, way back in episode 1.11, by my calculations. So it's high time to get back to them to see what's going on. A quick recap. Congress agreed to an enlargement of the Army in March 1792, and Wayne was appointed to the post of Major General on April 13, 1792. However, after assuming his post as head of the reorganized Army, now dubbed the Legion of the United States, it would take time for the new general to take full command of his force in the West. He would depart from Philadelphia on May 25, 1792, and arrive in Pittsburgh on June 14. Before he could proceed to Fort Washington in the Northwest Territory, Wayne would need to take care of business in Pittsburgh. One of his first tasks was to write to the temporary commander of the forces on the frontier and a rival for the major generalship that Wayne ended up with, General James Wilkinson. As Wilkinson would serve as Wayne's second-in-command upon his arrival at Fort Washington, Wayne wanted to begin his command with a cordial relationship with the subordinate general. This would ultimately prove to be harder than Wayne would have thought due to Wilkinson's ambitions to supplant Wayne in the top army post. However, even more urgent than establishing a relationship with his subordinates was the recruitment of soldiers. Wayne wrote to Secretary of War Knox on June 15, 1792 that, quote, I really feel awkwardly situated. A general without troops is somewhat similar to a fish out of water. When he arrived in Pittsburgh, despite having been promised 1,000 recruits soon to arrive, Wayne found only a captain, a lieutenant, an ensign, and 40 enlisted men and recruits would prove slow to trickle in throughout the spring. A sizable group of recruits would arrive in mid-July, but some of these newcomers had contracted smallpox, while others had, quote, a virulent venereal disease. Those affected would have to be isolated, while the rest, if not already, would have to be inoculated against smallpox. Not a promising start to this new force. However, Wayne would take the new recruits that came in and begin the process of training them to become, quote, dependable soldiers. By the end of July, Wayne would be able to state that, quote, discipline begins to make its appearance. Soon after, he would have to deal with instances of desertion, when, upon receiving reports in early August that a force of native warriors was heading towards Pittsburgh, Wayne rallied his forces to prepare for action, only to find that one-third of the recruits stationed in outposts around the army camp had fled rather than stand their ground. Wayne's response was swift and decisive. He offered a $10 reward to anyone military or civilian, who turned in a deserter. And as the fugitives were taken into custody, Wayne approved punishments ranging from 50 to 100 lashes to the branding of some of the deserters with the word coward on their foreheads. He even approved a death sentence for one of the deserters, quote, who was hanged before the troops on August 13th. Though the administration, when told about Wayne's punishments, would ultimately warn him against using branding in the future, as it was felt that it was, quote, a punishment upon which some doubts may be entertained as to its legality. It had its effect, and Wayne reported to Knox on September 7th that, quote, no desertions have taken place from this post for two weeks past. Slowly but surely, the general was crafting his new force, and though he was eager to lead troops into battle, he realized that if he wanted to lead an army to victory, he would have to be patient and take the time necessary to get them into shape. While Wayne worked to prepare his forces, Washington decided to use diplomacy at the very least to buy Wayne some time, though ideally to avoid conflict altogether. For this task, 
he appointed three envoys to journey into the Northwest Territory to negotiate. One of these three was someone that you'll want to remember, Timothy Pickering. Originally from Salem, Massachusetts, Pickering had entered service early on in the Revolution, being elected as Colonel of the 1st Essex Regiment in 1775 and rising to become Quartermaster General of the Army from 1780 to 1785. Following the war, he had moved to the Wyoming Valley in northeastern Pennsylvania and, like many men of the time, including Washington, looked to western lands as a lucrative prospect. However, again like many others, Pickering would ultimately be disappointed with his results. This failure would not hold him back for long, as his ambitions turned to the new federal government established by the Constitution. And, upon hearing of William Dewar's resignation as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, he wrote to Secretary Hamilton about the position. Though Pickering was passed over for that position, he would get a chance to prove himself during two appointments as a representative of the U.S. government to negotiate with Native peoples in the Northwest Territory, first in the autumn of 1790 and then in the summer of 1791. Pickering would prove successful in both of those negotiations, hence why he was chosen again to serve as an envoy in 1793. However, in the interim, Pickering had taken up another office in the federal government. Samuel Osgood, mentioned way back in episode 1.4, had been unwilling to move to Philadelphia from New York with the federal government and thus resigned as Postmaster General in 1791. You'll never guess who got the position. Come on, guess. Okay, it was Timothy Pickering. Along with Pickering, the commission in 1793 included Benjamin Lincoln, who we mentioned last episode as helping Tobias Lear to get his posting as Washington secretary, and former Virginia Governor Beverly Randolph. The trio left Philadelphia in late April and spent June and part of July at Fort Niagara, waiting for favorable winds to carry them across Lake Erie. They finally arrived just south of Detroit in mid to late July and remained there for a month, conducting negotiations by message as they proved unable to get an actual in-person meeting due to, quote, a combination of British manipulation and internal Indian disagreement. After several messages, the Native representatives concluded that they could not conduct negotiations without terms of the boundary of white settlement being set at the Ohio River. 24 hours after receiving that ultimatum, the commissioners had everything packed up and headed back to Pennsylvania. Wayne, meanwhile, had been keeping close tabs on the envoy's mission and had spent the spring, quote, planning strategy and perfecting his forces. Doing so, he had to deal with the administration questioning his plan of attack, the conniving of his second-in-command, James Wilkinson, who worked to undermine him in the hope that he would replace Wayne as head of the Legion, and the unease of Kentuckians at working with the regular soldiers of the Legion of the United States, despite being a critical part of Wayne's plans, which depended on mounted volunteers from Kentucky in order to carry out operations. Though it was too late in the season to launch an all-out offensive assault after word was received of the failure of the negotiations, Wayne's original plan was to lead his troops out by October 1st, quote, to protect the frontiers. Surprise, surprise, Wayne's plans unexpectedly hit a stumbling block again as a bout of influenza that ran through his forces, as well as the small numbers of supporting militia, caused the advance to go very slowly. However, he and his force finally made it from Cincinnati to Fort Jefferson. Upon their arrival, though, they were once again met with hardship, as they found few provisions at that fort, and the contractors who were supposed to provide provisions informed the general that they were having difficulty transporting more. After advancing a little further and holding a council of war, Wayne decided to erect a new fort, Fort Greenville, 
where he and his troops would spend the winter. He would spend this time preparing his army so that they would be ready for a rapid advance in the spring and would also have Fort Recovery constructed on the site of St. Clair's defeat. It may not have come quickly, but Wayne, since taking command, had little by little been putting the pieces in place and was starting to see a chance for victory in 1794. One of the X factors that threatened any plans for a military operation in the Northwest Territory was the agitation occurring in western Pennsylvania. By the spring of 1794, the Mingo Creek Association, which we mentioned last episode, had developed into a de facto government of its own. One of its first actions had been to stage a takeover of the authorized militias of the area. For those unfamiliar with the militia system of the time, militias in the early republic were the continuing legacy of a long-standing institution of citizen soldiers. But the system was highly decentralized in nature. All militias fell under the authority of the states unless called into service, and even attempts to establish, quote, national standards of uniformity and inspection of militias to gauge their effectiveness and fitness for service were balked at by the states. Thus, it all fell into the state's purview to monitor the militia forces. And as we discussed last episode, the citizens of western Pennsylvania were not too keen on government, even the state government, getting involved in their affairs. So it can be imagined that there was initially not a great awareness of what was occurring in the militias of the area as agitation started over the whiskey tax. In this instance, nearly every member of the Mingo Creek Association was also a member of the local militia battalion, and the association organized itself along the same lines as the militia. Association meetings were held at the same time as militia musters, and the musters would be used to share information about the association's efforts. More importantly, the overlap with the militia gave the association access to arms and armament provided by the state government, a structure designed to defend the government, was instead being co-opted to oppose government. The irony is great in this association. Furthermore, the Mingo Creek Association, opposed to a more conservative state constitution that had recently taken effect, which ended elections for local judges and gave judicial appointment power to the governor, decided to just go ahead and establish its own courts. They sent out the word that anyone with a grievance to file in the area, rather than going through the official channels, should bring it before the association for mediation. Naturally, the mediators, i.e. de facto judges, would be elected. In essence, the Mingo Creek Association became the highest authority in the area, something that both citizens and government officials would soon learn. Renting space for a tax registration office? A representative of the association would be knocking on your door with a strong recommendation that you change your mind. Government official coming into town from Philadelphia? Don't expect a warm welcome, and it's probably advisable that you not unpack your bags. And did you happen to notice the sudden popularity of Liberty Poles? That old symbol from the late revolution? Don't tread on me sounds like good advice, don't you think? Meanwhile, the inspector for the federal revenue in the district, General John Neville, had had more than enough and was seeking military assistance from the federal government when an effigy of Neville was burned at a militia muster in the spring of 1794. Not long after, Neville was riding home from Pittsburgh with his wife and granddaughter when they were approached by a man and a woman who asked if he was John Neville. Replying in the affirmative, the man attacked and wrestled Neville to the ground. Neville was able to best his assailant, and the man and woman escaped. However, it was becoming clear that the relative calm was giving way to the storm. Meanwhile, the change in the cabinet had brought in a new member who agreed with Hamilton's point of view in terms of a show of force to quell the agitations in the West, Attorney General William Bradford. 
Together with the U.S. Attorney for Pennsylvania, William Rawl, they devised a plan to give the rebels enough rope with which to hang themselves. Their plan was simple. Serve summons to those distillers that still had not registered. 75 distillers total. Of these, only 15 were east of the mountains. But all would be expected to either register on the spot or appear in court in Philadelphia in August. Going to court would mean weeks away, a large expense traveling, and lost income. It could be financially ruinous and would naturally rustle some feathers, which is exactly what these government officers wanted. If the rebels were spurred to open revolt, then Washington would be willing to send the troops in. They were so adamant about stirring up foment that when the U.S. representative from western Pennsylvania, William Finley, pushed through a reform bill which, quote, would allow the federal judiciary to establish court sessions in the countryside using local courts to hear federal tax cases in order to ease the burden on his constituents and quell the likely local anger, the U.S. attorney rushed through the warrants so they would be governed under the previous law, which would require the defendants to appear in Philadelphia. In mid-June, the U.S. Marshal for Pennsylvania, David Lennox, set out from Philadelphia to deliver the warrants. He started in the east and moved west, arriving in Pittsburgh on July 14th. Despite advice from a local leader seeking to avoid violence, Lennox asked General Neville to accompany him in delivering the summons locally. They started out in the morning from Neville's home, Bower Hill, and the first few went as smoothly as was possible given the circumstances. However, the more they issued the more word got around. And as the morning went on, a posse of 30 or 40 militiamen began following Lennox and Neville at a distance. They didn't approach. Rather, they watched and waited. However, around noon, circumstances would change. Lennox and Neville rode up to William Miller's farm. Upon being informed of the situation, Miller, who had already made plans to sell his farm after the harvest and move to Kentucky, quickly did the math in his mind and realized that a trip to Philadelphia would mean a delay for the foreseeable future of his planned move and his hopes of establishing a better life for himself. Up until this point, Miller had supported Neville in his public career. He was a veteran of the Revolutionary War like Neville. He hadn't been involved in the Mingo Creek Association. He was just a citizen trying to make a living. And now, this. It was the straw that broke this camel's back. As described by historian William Hoagland, quote, Miller was lost in a heart-pounding heat of rage and desperation and refused to accept the writ. He began cursing the marshal. The two got into a back and forth. Then Neville noticed something. The posse that had been following them was now moving to cut off their path to the main road. Realizing the danger, Neville called on Lennox to come on, and the two managed to beat the posse to the road and were able to escape to safety, but not before they heard the sound of rifle shots coming from behind them. Meanwhile, a militia force that was meeting at the Mingo Creek Church learned of the altercation, and before long, it was decided that Marshal Lennox should be arrested. A man named John Holcroft was elected to lead a group composed of, quote, many armed with rifles and muskets, though others were only armed with clubs, to Neville's estate, Bower Hill, where it was believed Lennox had gone after they left the Miller farm, while another group would be on the ready on the high southern ridge above Pittsburgh in case Lennox had gone there. The orders to the groups at both locations was, quote, fire if fired upon, destroy all impediments, at all cost, take the marshal. Lennox had indeed gone back to Pittsburgh, so when Holcroft and his forces arrived at Bower Hill and demanded that Neville turn Lennox over, there was nothing that he had to offer. However, instead of stating that, Neville instead went with response B, 
and told the rebels to, quote, stand off before firing and killing William Miller's nephew, Oliver. As they were fired upon, Holcroft and his men began their attack. As described by William Hoagland, quote, rebel balls ripped the planks on the windows and lodged in the wood frame. Neville had left the front door open, but Holcroft, noting the quality of fortification on the house, decided against a mass charge. The door might be commanded from inside by a cannon. For 25 minutes, therefore, the men pounded the house with gunfire. Inside, the general was relying with confidence on his position, his fortification, and his own ranks. The Neville's granddaughter lay on the parlor floor. Mrs. Neville and her visiting friend rapidly loaded guns. The general fired from posts at various windows, passed the gun back for reloading, took a newly loaded one, fired again. He didn't need to send out a barrage. He selected targets. With four of his forces having been picked off by Neville and the sun beginning to rise, Holcroft called for a retreat so that they could regroup. Though a few worked before the battle was taken up again to stave off the impending confrontation, many more on both sides gathered forces. More militias in the area, including those led by James McFarland, another Revolutionary War veteran and major of the militia, were called into service to reinforce Holcroft's group, with McFarland being asked to command the rebel forces, while a detachment of soldiers led by Major Abraham Kirkpatrick had arrived to defend Bower Hill. July 17, 1794, was ultimately set to become the day that the gauntlet was thrown down. 600 rebels arrived at Bower Hill at 5 in the afternoon, and demanded that Neville give up his commission as Inspector of the Revenue. McFarlane was informed that Neville wasn't home, and the tension quickly escalated as some of the rebel forces began setting outbuildings ablaze. The rebel forces did hold their fire long enough for the women that were in the house to flee. Once the women were out of harm's way, the shooting began. Before long, a white flag was waving from a window, and McFarlane stepped out from behind a tree to order the rebel forces to hold fire, and was shot in the groin and killed. Seeing their commander shot, the rebels resumed firing in earnest at the house and setting more buildings on the estate on fire. As the flames neared the house, Major Kirkpatrick was forced to surrender, and while his men were allowed to go free, Kirkpatrick was taken into custody. The flames ultimately did consume the mansion, and everything but the slave quarters and the smokehouse on the estate was left in ashes. The skirmish and the ruins of Bower Hill signaled the beginning of the active insurrection of the Whiskey Rebellion. Though the action is just getting going, this is where we must draw this episode to a close. Next time, we'll see if Wayne's preparations pay off, as well as whether the Whiskey Rebellion succeeds, in an episode I'd like to call, The Bigger They Are. Until then, please feel free to reach out to me with any questions, comments, or whiskey-related plans to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source information for this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And you can also catch up on past episodes there or by finding the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or TuneIn. As always, thanks so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events 
that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.